There are lots of blogs, podcasts, videos, and resources out there that talk about the fundamental concepts of microservices, what they are, the challenges associated with them, as well as what makes them tick. But a lot of you are probably asking, how can I get microservices up and running? Joining us in this round of cocktails is one of the directors of technology at Publicis Sapient, who co-authored the books Microservice Architecture and Microservices Up and Running. He gives out some practical advice to implement microservices as we get into some of the methods, processes, and concepts to help you successfully run your own microservice architecture. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Joining us from Sydney, Australia, is Tor Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Good day, David. Good day, Kevin. All right. And our guest for today is the Director of Technology at Publicis Sapient, helping companies around the world improve their organizational designs and system architectures. He combines a focus on UX principles and managing system complexity to tackle the challenges of building effective API programs and establishing practical strategies for transformation. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails is Ronnie Mitra. Hi, Ronnie. Great to have you on the podcast. Hello. All right. Hi, thank you for having me. Great. Now, before we discuss some of the topics on microservices from your books, uh, I'd like to hear more about your experience as the Director of Technology at Publicis Sapient. Uh, you describe your role as enabling financial service companies to digitally transform and unlock the value of the digital ecosystem around them. So what changes are you witnessing right now in the financial services space? Yeah, that is a crazy description for my role. Uh, I guess I I guess I wrote that <laughs> at some point, right? Uh, and I should, yes, I did. should. <laughs> it's on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> well, it's LinkedIn. <laughs> you know, we all write stuff like that on LinkedIn. Uh, the truth is, uh, so let's be honest, I'm not the director of technology. I am a director. So there's a few of us, thankfully, uh, because we have a pretty big client base. Um, for for Publicis Sapient as a consulting firm, I mean, what we're really trying to do is help organizations with with what we call digital business transformation, uh, which means, you know, the world is changing. How can clients cope, right? How do they serve their customers? How do they change their business models? How do they change the way they run their organization, right? From top to bottom, across in every aspect. Uh, so that's an exciting exciting thing to try and tackle. Uh, and a lot of my work is specifically in the financial services industry. But like we as a company, we cover all kinds of industry, retail, manufacturing, et cetera. So, I mean, just like, just like a lot of us, we're out there trying to help people use things like APIs and microservices, reinvent themselves, you know, and compete fundamentally with others. And there's obviously a lot of uh, trends in the financial services space. FinTech is a, is, has been an enormous area in uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, what sort of changes are you witnessing, the, the, the structural change, the transformation that's occurring there? Well, like, 
let's be honest, I'm an API and data guy at heart. What's amazing to me is if it was, you know, five or 10 years ago when I was talking about, hey, you know, APIs are, are something you really should be paying attention to. The overwhelming reaction in financial services back then was really, oh, that's fascinating. We'd love to hear you talk about it. Now, all we do is internal APIs, and we're not really interested in any of this other like business transformation and, and changing the way we do business. Whereas now, uh, there are a number of global banks, large, uh, you can call them tier one banks, commercial banks, who have embrace this, not just from a tech perspective, but they are now looking at how do we take everything we do and put these services in new places where our potential customers are. Uh, and that fundamental change is exciting. And at the same time, you mentioned FinTech. There's this idea that how do we take the stuff that other people are doing and use their services so that we can power our organization and company uh, and that is fundamentally different from the way a bank technology worked five or 10 years ago, right? It's a big, big shift and it's exciting. Mm. Are you, you involved in the fintech space as well as the traditional banking space? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, certainly we we work with fintech firms quite a bit. Uh, in some cases, going in and helping them with their product, uh, especially around open banking, the the regulatory uh, requirement in Europe and spreading to the rest of the world in, in variations. Uh, a lot of what we do also is helping the big banks uh, figure out how to work with fintechs and get the most from them. Mm-hmm. Buy them. Or use them, right? Right. <laughs> use their capabilities, use their APIs. See which ones survive and grow and buy them. <laughs> um, okay, so you mentioned that uh, APIs were a passion of yours. Where did this passion uh, develop from? I don't know. I, I guess I guess at some point someone kept paying me to do things in the API space, right? That's how all of this starts, probably for any of us. Um, but mm. there is a for me a such a strong correlation between how systems talk to each other and how people talk to each other. These kinds of parallels that that large things are actually made up of small things uh, that communicate. Right, and we get emergent behavior. Uh, for me, a lot of a lot of that is where the interest comes from, um, you know, and and being able to see in our technology space something to me that reflects what's in the real world has always been pretty fascinating, right? And just this this kind of unlocked potential. But uh, you know, since I'm on the couch, I, I don't know where the where the passion comes from. <laughs> and of course, you've written a couple of books on microservices, so. Um, uh, presumably you were implementing APIs and then came across microservices and emerging architecture uh, for building the back end of services. Is that how it came about? Yeah, the microservices thing happened while uh, myself, my co-author of the book, Arakli, uh, and a few others of us, we were in a, a group called the API Academy. So we were pretty heavily you know, invested in talking about what APIs should look like, how you should build them. It was a it was a thought leadership team, and people started talking about microservices. Uh, so we had to start paying attention way back then. And you know, the more we dug into it, the more we realized that hey, this this moniker that you know the, this group of architects had come up with looked like it was 
it was interesting and there is some practical application and it sounded a lot like the way we were talking about how applications should be built. So it was kind of a natural fit uh, in terms of a, a vein to mine. And of course, you've written a couple of books. So you started with Microservice Architecture in 2016 and more recently, Microservices up and running in 2020. Uh, what What's the difference between the two books? Has the architecture evolved? Is it you, you identifying um, new techniques? What, what's the difference there? Well, I think what's evolved is our understanding and um, the, let's, let's call it the adoption cycle, right? Where we are in terms of our microservices story as an industry. So when we wrote that first book, we were at that time as thought leaders getting a lot of questions about, hey, like what are microservices? How do I do them? What does it really mean to do microservices? Uh, Sam Newman had written his great book on microservices that was very uh, technically oriented. We were trying to create something to go along with that that would be shorter, something that someone who just really wanted to get the essence of it could get it. So it's a pretty pretty small book. Uh, one of the ideas was this should be something you could read on like a long haul flight, right? You could you could read half of it going out, read the other half going back in, and you could walk into the meeting with a really strong understanding of the principles of microservices, right? Uh, the second book is the opposite of that. The second book is um, my co-author, Arakli and I, together saying, you know, what's missing now is something that helps the person who's been told, now we need to do this, and helps them in terms of the landscape of things they need to figure out in a very guided way, in a very prescriptive way. So you can just get going, uh, which is why we love the uh, the up and running kind of theme that O'Reilly uses for these books, because that's really what we were going for. So a much more practical version. Yeah, so you've taken that up and running theme and you've applied it to the microservices model. You talk about uh, team design and uh, data design, deployments to cloud platforms, as well as obviously the microservices design. Uh, so. What what do you when you how do you correlate the the up and running model to your in in your book? I think I think the parts of the model you're describing are really based on based on the experience from Arakli and I having to do this in real life. Those are the the parts of the system we need to pay attention to, and they're they're highly interrelated. Um, for me, though, the the up and running aspect of this is that. We, as authors in this book in particular, have made a series of decisions across all of those spaces for you, right? Now, when you do this for your own company, you're going to have to make all those decisions. You're going to have to figure out, are we using a cloud platform? Which one? Are we going to use their services? Are we going to try and be agnostic? Are we going to try and be portable? Are we doing serverless? Are we doing event-driven? Like, There's this constellation of decisions. Uh, and what we wanted to do instead was give you a guided version of the first one. Um, in the book, uh, we mentioned there's this, this idea of the Dreyfus model of learning. It's the Dreyfus model of acquisition, if I remember correctly. Uh, and that was written by two, two brothers, the Dreyfus brothers, who were both uh, university professors years and years back. And it always stuck with me. And the idea is that when you're learning a new skill, whether it's like tennis or golf or even microservices, it's much easier if you start by following someone. So the first step is to have a really guided learning trail where someone holds your hand and they tell you how to do everything. 
before you understand why you were doing those things, right? So that's the first step. You just kind of got, you need to go through it. You need to go through the motion of it. Uh, and then there's subsequent steps where you start to understand the, like the game within the game, the, the reason why you're doing these things. And then the true mastery comes when, you know, it's almost like subconscious. You're not even thinking about why I'm doing things. You're just doing it because, you know, these are the right things to do. So the goal here is we'll start you on that path, right? So you get to do the first one in a very guided way so that the next time you're doing this for real, you've already gone through this process and you can start to see the decisions within the decisions and the impacts and like the muscles that you'll need to make this work for real. So how prescriptive is it? Are you, are you deciding on some of these architectural decisions uh, like you, you mentioned a whole bunch of things, like event-driven architectures and a serverless and all that sort of stuff. Are you deciding on a particular architecture and prescribing that and guiding through someone through that process? In the book, yeah. In the book, we are. Yes. Uh, and okay. partly because, hey, it's a book, right? You've got a certain number of pages, so we need to get you from uh, thinking about what a microservice is all the way to having one running with DevOps and, and data and all of that stuff in like, what, what is it? 200 pages, 300 pages. Mm. So we need to move fast. Yeah. It, it's a really practical hands-on hands -on guide as to when you get to the end of it, you've actually produced something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> now you also talk about a seeds method, seven essential evolutions of design of services uh, for designing microservices. What is the seeds method? So we should, we should give credit to Iraqli. Iraqli named the, the seeds method. Uh, it's, it's reflective really of the way both he and I approach API design and microservices. And I think he mentions in the book specifically, he's modeling that after the work he was doing in, um, in healthcare when he first started playing with building microservices. Uh, but I have to say, you know, I follow almost exactly the same process. The, the idea is that you don't create APIs in a code first way or microservices strictly in a code first way, right? So if we're making interfaces, what we do is we start with understanding of who's going to use them, what they want to use them for. And from that, you start to evolve a picture of the capabilities, the you know, the queries, the commands, all of the things you need to do to serve those needs, right? So it's a very uh, customer-centric, user-centric, needs-focused way of implementing and designing a service. Well, run us through the, those seven uh, um, processes. So I believe, you know, you, you're talking about identifying the um, stakeholders associated with the the services. So presumably you're, you're identifying the stakeholders are collaborating with them on the implementation and design of those services. Is that, is that right? Is that the starting point? Yeah, I think in, in Seeds it's called identifying actors. Uh, okay. You can call that whatever you like, but the, the main thing is to identify the, the users or communities of users that are going to use the service. Now, you know, the corollary there, that can be a challenge if what you're trying to build is something that's highly flexible and generic. Right. If you're building something that you actually want to be reused across channels, across services in 16 million different ways, uh, it's a little bit harder. So then you have to define a few more of these actors. Right. But typically in the microservices context, we have some idea of who we're building these things for. So you start with that. Uh, and I think the next step would be uh, the jobs to be done step. 
It's a little bit of a. I think it's the sequence diagrams. Right. Okay. So, the, <laughs> yeah, this is a bit of a test for me. You know, I just write them. I don't. I don't read the books. I just write. Them. Uh, the key, though, right, is so if if we figure out who needs to use the service and we figure out, you know, what they want to get from it, that's how you can start mapping out the interactions. Uh, and in the seeds method, which is more prescriptive, it's it's with a sequence diagram, which is a fantastic way to start bubbling up the questions of like, you know, how does this actually have to work so that that actor can actually achieve their need or the job that they're trying to do. Understand the, um, I mean, this is a real practical uh, guide to getting up and running with microservices with hands-on um, tutorial type concepts of getting a microservice up and running in a prescriptive format. Where do they go after this book? Like what, what's, what's next? Uh, do, do they, do you then start learning more about architecture and, and different implementations? Uh, where do you go to after up and running? So this is a very valid question. I guess it depends on who the reader is, right? So if, if your goal is that you, you want to be an expert in microservices architecture, uh, I would say after, after this book, you need to do this again, right? I mean, the, the, true, the true concept of mastery is going to come from gaining experience. Uh, one of the reasons why we've tried to catalog the decisions is that we think it gives readers an opportunity to go back and change some of those decisions uh, and see if they can improve the architecture to fit the context that they have or the needs that they have, right? And see the impact of changing that. I mean, ideally, what we all really want to do is do it for real, right? So I'd say after going through the book, what you want to do is find a project and actually apply some of this and, and start to decompose. Now I'll say in, in reality, very few of us get the chance to do it the way we did it in the book, where you have a complete greenfield and you get to just say, what I'm gonna build is this and I'm building it with microservices. The kind of the missing book here, the missing handbook is probably the one uh, that tells you how to sell this or you know, how to make it fit your existing business or how to select the parts of your existing application that you, you want to start decomposing and, and pulling apart, right? And that, that's an area I'd like to talk to you about in terms of your experience with Sapien because that's what you're doing on a daily basis, right, yeah. in your role of Sapien is the actual implementation. So, it, like, how do you find that those concepts from your book are translating to the real world and, and where... Do you find that, you know, because you're dealing with people a lot, right? In, yeah. in, in, in a real world situation, the, the complexity is often around uh, people and organizational st structure and bureaucracy and all the rest of it, right? So uh, tell us about the, the experience there and where, where I guess some of that sort of theory comes a little bit unstuck. Yeah, thankfully, uh, this book is actually reflective of, of the real world work that both Arachne and I have done. Uh, including my sapien work and and his work at a uh, big bank. I think he mentions the bank. I think we're allowed to say Capital One. Uh, so it's definitely grounded in reality, but it's it's simplified a bit, right? So that it can be digestible as a book. And it doesn't have the context of a particular customer's 
you know, technology and constraints. And like you said, I think that's where, when you try to do this for real, uh, you need those those skills if you're doing it in a big enterprise. So if you're you're trying to introduce a microservices stack into a big company, uh, our our experience is you need to establish a little bit of a greenfield approach. It's a lot it's a lot harder to do this in place in an existing application. It's much easier to do this if we say there's an aspect of the application or architecture that we want to pick off. And we're going to do that by almost like planting a seed in a new place. And we start building it there. And I've seen that done in a few ways. Some some banks have been more ambitious and they want to do it almost like a big bang. Like, hey, we're going to rebuild the entire bank on the cloud mm. aspirationally, which requires a lot more of upfront design. And then other banks might be saying, there's a specific application, you know, the op costs are too high, it's too slow to change, and we need to improve that. And we want to do this microservices and cloud-based approach. So you can start to pick it off a little bit smaller. Uh, but either way, if you, you take the, the chapters of the book and you start going through them, um, what, what I find is it helps you come up with the right questions to ask. For example, when that, when that client or when your your business tells you they want you to improve a you know an existing online application a web-based application and you start going down the microservices route you know don't forget about data don't forget about the operating model because you're probably going to have to change the way the team works as you move this thing over right into a, a new world uh, the the other thing from from real world is that businesses don't care that much about microservices, right? And we need to keep that in mind. Like they know what they are nowadays. But if you think about it, what, what is the value to a business of breaking something big that you run as a tech organization into five things? Well, the answer is, okay, operating cost is lower, speed of change. Yeah, they care about those things. But one of the biggest shifts you have to make if you're an enterprise company is how do you how do you make it so the technology team can do that optimization without justifying it every time to the business? Because what you really wanted to deliver to your business is, hey, you know, that app, we were able to deliver it in three months. Or we just improved the functionality like really quickly because we did some internal tech optimization and we made it all work. Uh, that turns out to be a bigger shift, right? Because then we need everyone to uh, establish trust. We need to remove the barriers to that trust. Uh, and that's bigger than microservices. Yeah, like you said, uh, they, they don't really care about the implementation. They care about change. They require, they care about transformation, del delivering new products and services to customers and what the market wants, or they're even internal stakeholders like employees or business partners. Um, and, and if microservices is a way of implementing or providing that, then fine. <laughs> but equally, whilst five services as opposed to one may require may mean that uh, you can roll out those changes faster. It also means you've now got five times as many services to manage. It does. And so there's, there's, a, there's a cost as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the, 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 how are you seeing that cost being managed? Is that, do you see any headaches associated there? Cause obviously five is probably more like 500 in, in, you know, in terms of a financial application in, in a large bank. So how, how do you find that process of managing, breaking down these monoliths into many, many services? 
If I'm honest, I think I think this is what most people struggle with. Uh, how big should a microservice be? How do I decompose my application into them? Because we all are worried about the 500 microservice scenario, right? It's in the back of everyone's head. We're all worried that if you break it up too much, the you know end-to-end -end performance might suffer. That's the first one that gets thrown out there, right? Okay, what's that going to do to performance? And then we worry about how we're going to manage all of these things. How are we going to find them, discover them, operate them, right? Uh, and that's why when you start pulling on this microservice thread, usually you end up, and I think this is good, you start pulling on these other threads too, like Kubernetes to help with reducing the cost of operating a lot of things, uh, the cloud to reduce the infrastructure cost of operating things and to get elastic scalability so you can start to like turn down the volume on some of the like the the fear we've got ways of managing that the cost thanks to tech the cost of doing this has actually gotten cheaper right but where you'll be left with is still the fundamental question of like so how do we decompose this right uh and where i try and take our our clients is you know well firstly you know that there's not going to be a final state, right? Like it's not going to be that you've broken this up into four things and you're done. What you actually want to get to is that you're you're continuously like playing with this. Uh, in the book, um, I think it was Arakli who wrote this part, actually gives some very strong guidance, which is a great useful tool, like starting with um, event storming as a technique, drawing out some boundaries, using those as a way to start figuring out where things are. But the truth is, hate to break it to you, these are all design decisions. So you can have all these techniques and methods to get you started, but what you really need to do is to build a habit of optimizing, measuring and optimizing, and you need the technology that lets you make those changes. Uh, last thing I'll mention here is like, a, we all know none of this is new, right? I mean, since the early 80s, late 70s, Larry Constantine, David Parnas, uh, everyone's been talking about structured design. Mel Conway said his thing way back. The reason it's so relevant now, I really think, is because not only has the pressure for speed and safety at the same time increased, but also the technology has made all this much more possible, right? Because you couldn't manage that risk and cost you talked about before, but now you can. So now we can build this way. We couldn't do it before. In your book, you've dedicated a, a chapter to architectural decision records, uh, and you also have a GitHub repository on them as well. How do uh, the uh, architectural decision records come into play when it comes to building software? Yeah, th these are one of those things that's like dead simple as a concept, right? But uh, I think not enough people do it. What, what I really like about logging decisions, whether you use ADRs or Michael Nygaard's LADR format, or if you just call it a decision log and you put it in Jira, whatever you do. It's so useful because uh, the microservice thing is huge and complex. And what I noticed was happening is you, you end up in these meetings where people are talking about the same thing over and over. Uh, and then you have a meeting the next week and you talk about the same thing over and over. Right. Well, instead, what we want to do is to be able to pick off the parts of this into almost like bounded decisions where we can say, this is a decision we're making and we're moving forward now and you can revisit it, right? But 
that helps us because the challenge of the microservice space is every decision you make has an impact on 16 more, which is why we end up in those circular conversations and we don't make progress. So it's just one of these simple tools that I've found uh, in practice is really, really effective. So I encourage everyone you know, to do some form of this on your project. We do it in our own uh, sprint records because you're, you're always sort of brainstorming ideas in a sprint, right? Totally. <laughs> and, and, and we found the same thing as we kept on going around in circles. Talk, you know, actually, didn't we talk about this a few months ago? What, what was it we talked about? <laughs> yeah. And so actually starting to document it as you go, let's write that down, record it. Um, so you can have a permanent record and reference it later is becoming valuable. And where it really pays off when someone joins your team and you can point them to this thing and say, hey, look, yeah. if you want to see how we got here, it's all right here. Because you're about to ask the same question we asked. It's it's all over there. Yeah. Yeah. Ronnie, uh, the, the book is uh, clearly some uh, very clear, concise and practical advice on microservices. Uh, and uh, it, 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 the target market is is an architect, a programmer. What, what who, who is the audience of this book? I think it's primarily both of those roles you described. Yeah, I mean, I could mm -hmm. see definitely also sea uh, level CTO uh, getting value from the book, but we wrote it for the architect or the engineer developer who needs to build one of these and who is a little bit unsure about the things they will need to do to get there, right? So this is all about giving that person some guidance. Uh, and also, if you are currently running a microservices system, this gives you a, a validation point. You know, you can go through the book and say, okay, well, we did that. We did that. Oh, I never thought about that. Maybe we should start looking into this piece. Brilliant. Ronnie Mitra, thank you very much for your time. How, how can our uh, listeners uh, stay in touch with uh, your musings and uh, what you're reading and writing about? That's a good question. Uh, I have a Twitter account that I don't tweet on. I tweet once a year. Uh, I think I think probably the best way is, you know, probably LinkedIn. You could follow me on LinkedIn. You can. Uh, I'm all over Google. If you search for me, you find me, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what kind of answer to give you here. The other thing is, hey, you can come and hire me and uh, I would be happy to spend time. Well, that's how we found you. We Googled you. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm all over Google. I don't know if I'm the only one. Ronnie, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! <laughs>